Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, your weekly media current affairs panel show. We're live on 2SCR Radio and across the community radio network. My name's Jack Fisher and tonight, is the ABC really a great place to be a woman in the workplace? One magazine writer seems to think so and it's been causing quite a stir. And the Labour Party's new team of journalists won't be allowed to join the parliamentary press gallery. Is it just tough luck for them? Well, joining me on the phone from Melbourne, we have Whitney Fitzsimmons, former ABC TV news presenter and director on the board of the 100% Project, which campaigns for equal representation of women and men at board and executive levels across Australia. Welcome back to Fourth Estate, Whitney. Hi. Thank you, Jack. And our Fourth Estate favourite, Miriam Robin, also joining us from Melbourne, media writer for Craggy. Hi, Miriam. Hello. And keeping me company here in the 2SER studio, Bridget Delaney, Features Editor with Guardian Australia. Hello. Hey, Jack. Now, to have your say on the issues we're discussing, don't forget you can get in touch with us through Twitter. Our handle is 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. Now, if you'd picked up a copy of The Sun-Herald two weekends ago, you might have spotted the familiar faces of the ABC's Virginia Trioli, Lee Sales and Emma Alberici on the cover of Sunday Life magazine. Sunday Life had a profile on seven prominent women in executive producer and presenter roles at the ABC, and it talks about how the ABC has supported them to maintain their high-pressure schedules as well as their family lives. And it was all topped off with the kind of glam photo shoot that you might expect from Vanity Fair magazine, but you wouldn't expect done for Kerry O'Brien or Tony Jones. And it has ruffled some feathers. Many feel that the ABC isn't as flexible and supportive a place to work as the article makes it out to be. Whitney, you've written a couple of responses to this article in the ABC. What's wrong with this picture? Well, I had a lot of problems with the article itself, but if you want to talk about the picture, I mean... Figuratively, not literally, but take it any way you will. I just find it interesting that they didn't show them on the job. Like, why did they show them in a film set, first of all? We don't even operate like that, you know, in the newsroom. And secondly... It just was ridiculous. It looked like a Vanity Fair Oscars sort of, you know, set up. And it's just not what they are. You know, it's not what they look like when they're at work. It's not what they do. It's it's bizarre. I just didn't get it. Miriam? Um, the the picture, I guess, was, um, well, you, you could imagine a picture like that being done in the 1950s. So, you know, if it was an article about how far the ABC uh, and women in the ABC had come since then, I don't know why the picture had to hark back to such um, stereotypical ways, I guess, of depicting women in glamorous positions. Um, but, you know, I, I, I can see why Fairfax did it. You know, they thought it was a, a beautiful picture, and it was it was a beautiful picture. But maybe, and, you know, at the risk of, you know, telling a stylist who knows much more about how to set up these things than I do how to do his or her job, um, you know, it wasn't perhaps as creative as it could have been in terms of how to depict them in a way that was both appealing and reflective of what they actually do. So the article kicks off. It says, Gathering all the ABC's top female talent in the same room is not easy, and there are lengthy email trails about competing schedules before the Sunday Life photo shoot is locked in. I mean, if it's so much trouble and the journalists involved have much more important work to be doing, as Sarah Ferguson, who cancelled at the last minute, clearly did, why do they bother with such a technical photo shoot? Well, I've done a number of Sunday Life cover stories and been on those shoots, and they're they're very time-consuming. They involve a lot of people. And um, the end result is the magazine's a product, and in order to sell or push that product, it it should be as attractive as possible. So I think um, the Sunday Life team fulfilled that brief very well. Um, it, it looked very expensive and glitzy and, um, that's what magazines do. Um, I guess one of the issues with it is that 
if you're a woman wanting to go into journalism, um, particularly television journalism, you might feel a pressure to look a certain way and a cover like that doesn't help um, that perception and um, it can make the people there who, who are less glamorous feel like uh, they don't make the grades. So it's as a piece of art, it's it's really nice, and um, but maybe as a, a political statement, it, it's not so great. Well, and I would like to pick up on that point, actually, that Bridget just mentioned. And the thing is that, you know, if we're going to empower young women and make them feel that they can actually go off and, you know, do whatever they want to do. Um, if it, When I saw that picture, what disturbed me was I thought, okay, if there's a young girl out there who feels that she's not necessarily a glamour puss or, you know, um, it's a bit plain, but she's really smart and she wants to be a journalist, and, you know, you'd think, okay, well, I guess I can't go to the commercials, but maybe I can go to a- the ABC and you see something like that that is completely misrepresenting what it's actually like there. I just, I just, uh, it really upset me. I found it quite disturbing because that's, that's the point. It's sort of making out to be, you know, that you have to be glamorous in order to read the news, and that's just not the case. So where does this idea come from, and is there a sort of, I suppose, celebrification, I suppose, of, of those who are in presenter roles? What do you think, Whitney? Well, I actually think what it is is that it was a, an attempt to diffuse the Q&A controversy by using, you know, a story like this to kind of pump up the, the broadcaster and say, hey, look what we're doing for all of our female journalists. I, I, I don't think that it was anything other than that, really. Um, I mean, yeah, I was a television presenter for 10 years and, you know, live television every day, and there is pressure. I mean, you don't go into a job like that without actually um, knowing that what what you're walking into. But, um, you know, I also approached it as I was reading the news, so I don't want to go in there looking like I'm hosting a fashion show. And I wouldn't, you know, I would, I would make sure that I was a very kind of conservative, um, you know, I kept things very plain as possible. And, you know, some people don't do that. That's their choice. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that, but I just think this photo was misrepresenting what it actually is to be a journalist at the ABC in terms of, you know, uh, in television. Miriam, the uh, the Q and A debacle still seemed to have some legs in it. Almost when this uh, when this feature came out two weekends ago, do you think there's anything to that suggestion that this is an attempt to diffuse that controversy? Um, I think, given all the difficulties with scheduling that you alluded to earlier, um, maybe the photo shoot was locked in a, a long time earlier, and it just happened to chase Q and A out of the headlines. I mean, that was certainly its effect. Um, I don't know when this was set up. Um, but yeah, it, it did successfully change the subject, I guess. It certainly has. So there's a, there's this question of whether having women in EP, executive producer and presenter roles is reflective of the actual structure of a media organisation or whether it's just a sort of window dressing. Whitney, what are the real power structures that can be found in a media organisation? You mean in terms of how management operates? Is that what you mean? Or Well, I mean, if the suggestion that because all of the women in executive producer or presenter roles are, are, are women, that women yield a certain power in the ABC, if that's not true, where is the power? Well, first of all, not all the women, not all the executive position, executive producer positions and presenters are women in the ABC. Let's just be put that on the table. That's not, you know. Uh, second of all, it's not the executive producers and the presenters having been there that make the decisions about if the show is going to survive, 
uh, where the show's going, if it's staying on ABC One, if it's going to go to News 24, it's, you know, if it's going to stay in the news division, if it's going to go to television. Um, I mean, it's a very the, – the sort of traditional power structure is still very intact in the ABC. Uh, if you look at the executive, there are still many, many men that are in, you know, leadership positions. I'm, I'm not saying there shouldn't be. I'm just saying that to to communicate that the ABC that, – that, that the newsrooms are shifting and changing, that's, that's just a fantasy because they're not. Bridget, you've worked across a number of media organisations. Where do you think those power structures lie and are they still of a very sort of old world nature? Um, well, definitely The Guardian, the, the three kind of global heads of The Guardian, um, Emily Wilson in Australia, Lee Glendening in the US and Kath Feiner in the UK and head of Global Guardian, they're, they're all women. Um, so that's um, – and that's been uh, – they're three appointments that are relatively recent, um, but that gives me sort of great faith as a, a female journalist that a media organisation is is being run um, at the top by women. Um, I guess um, I've never worked at the ABC, so I can't comment on that. But I know that, um, well, for example, Sunday Life is, is run by a really good editor, Danielle Toich, who's a woman, um, and Pat Ingram is also in that mix, woman. Um, you know, it's... It, yeah, it depends, I guess, where you are, um, and um, I think it's changing. You know, I, th- I think that um, you know, it's just as long as we have flexible workplaces where women can have time off to have children or job share, you're going to see more women. And um, I think the point that um, Whitney's made in her pieces is that not everyone has those opportunities at the ABC, so it's not not all. Um, not all women are created equal in that that place. Miriam. Well, no, not not all people are created equal in the ABC, actually. But I'll, I'll leave that. You go on to Miriam. <laughs> yeah, sure. Look, we'll come back to that in a sec. Miriam, do you think those those old power structures are changing? I well, I think clearly they are. Um, but you know, I think I think change is slow, and and I think some parts of the media um, have more of a problem with this than than others. Um, you know, I'd, I'd sort of single out maybe TV and radio as, um, and I'm not thinking of the ABC, I'm thinking of commercial TV and radio, um, still being very male-dominated in their power structures. I think print is possibly a little bit more enlightened, but, you know, th- there is change, but, but it's slow, and, and, and at particular organisations, it's still at a, at a base that it really has to move on from. So, Whitney, you're saying in the ABC, I think you've written that some, it's a bit like Animal Farm, you've said, some are more, some employees are more equal than others. Mm. Um, are you saying that's to do with women and men, or is it in fact something else? No, no, it's to do, I mean, both people, both, both genders suffer mm-hmm. at the hands of the two-tiered system at the ABC. So, for example, because it is a public broadcaster, um, you know, it has to adhere, it has to be seen to be transparent, it has to be seen to uh, have a, uh, you know, it's, it's a public service, so it has a public service payment system, it's a band point system. However, as it's been revealed, you know, there are also people there that, are allowed to negotiate a market salary or a salary. And so there's two systems. Some people are stuck on a band point system, which is completely inequitable. And some people are able to uh, negotiate a salary that is well and above outside the um, band point system. And the decision of who is allowed to do what is very, very um, opaque. Uh, it's, it's, 
arbitrary and you, you really don't know how people fall into either category. So are the ABC justified in paying higher salaries to those who perhaps it wants to prevent otherwise being scooped up by some of the commercial networks, do you think? Well, well, I think this, the issue is, look, and, and I had said this in my original crikey piece, but it, it was cut out because of, you know, length, et cetera, and that's totally fine. I don't have a problem with that. But, um, you know, I can understand that on some in some ways the ABC wants to operate as a commercial, like in a commercial broadcasting sense, you know, make these kind of calls. But you can't communicate to the public that you're being transparent and that it's this utopian, that it's good for everyone and that all working parents, you know, get flexible leave and all people are treated equal. It's just not the case. That's the, that is the fact. And, you know, and I think that's the problem I've had is that, you know, uh, you're not treated – there's no, and I've, I mean, I've been a beneficiary of this system too, and I admitted that, you know, like you either, if you, some people are appointed to positions, some people have to actually go through an interview process when there's an incumbent, some people can, you know, negotiate a salary, some people get flexible work hours, other people don't, and they're forced into working overnight shifts, you know, and they, they're told to suck it up when, when they ask for working hours that, you know, could maybe suit them and be better for them and their family. So that that's more the issue that I had is that that there was this portrayal as uh, that yeah. the ABC is this kind of egalitarian system, which it's not. I see. Now you're on Fourth Estate with myself, Jack Fisher. I'm speaking to Whitney Fitzsimmons, Bridget Delaney, and Miriam Robin. Bridget, did you want to hop in there? Yeah, um, one thing I've noticed. Uh, I've been a journalist for about 15 years now, and I went from print to online, and. Um, Shift changes in the way that people work now, I mean, it's both men and women, it has become a lot more demanding. So I think newsrooms um, are sort of 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week operations, and um, it's actually really hard to to have a life and to, um, you know, have good work-life balance, um, keep your health and fitness see friends um, when you when you are in online news because um, I've had a number of jobs where they've started at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., overnight shifts in London, so working from midnight, you know, through till 8. So I think, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of media organisations um, are changing and uh, workers, you know, across the board have to suck it up and it, it can be quite unpleasant. Miriam, I'll ask you about that because obviously a lot of journalists are being asked to suck it up and we're sort of given a sense that this is an industry that isn't quite as strong as it used to be and uh, that everyone sort of has to make sacrifices. Is that any excuse for not equitable treatment between between different employees? I think it's really, I, don't know, I really struggle with this sort of question and, and, you know, over time and things like that that people have to do in the media. I mean, for and I know this isn't the case for, for many roles in the media, but I know if you're working in print, Generally speaking, you do get a, a direct benefit to yourself for, you know, working really hard. And, and the people who advance their careers, especially in the early stages, are probably the ones who volunteer to do overtime, who get more bylines, who, who work hardest. And, and, and because of that, um, and, you know, they, that might be because they're a single unattached men who don't have other responsibilities. But, you know, just because it's, it is so competitive and there are such rewards and, and you know, editors and, and producers and all of that like to see you working really hard and it, it, it's just competition I think makes it extraordinarily um, difficult you know so, so even if you've got a great editor who says you can go home 
I think the odds are that if you if you go all out and you and you leave everything um, at work and you you know do your absolute most, your your career will probably advance faster than if you clock off at five. So yeah, then we come to this question of the meritocracy because the ABC's boss Mark Scott describes the ABC as a meritocracy. The ABC's response to your article, Whitney declares that all appointments are based on merit. More than half of the ABC workforce are women now, and yet, as the article uh, the um, the article concedes, there are two women and six men on the board, and then four women and eight men among the executive. So the question of quotas, Whitney, are they needed? Well, I mean, the whole country's a meritocracy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and it's really working, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing that we're leaps and bounds ahead of Europe at a corporate level uh, of equal representation, you know, and boards and executives around Australia. I mean, I just think the idea of a meritocracy is is also a fantasy because it's about behaviour and behavioural change. And and the thing is, we we have this this is just a you know it's it's a historical pattern of behavior and um you have to sometimes impose a a mechanism to trigger behavioral change and that's what i'm talking about when i say quotas i think quotas are necessary i don't think quotas necessarily should be permanent i think what we need to do because clearly a meritocracy is not working i'm talking about in corporate australia i also believe it doesn't really work in the abc um but I do believe that we need to introduce a, a set of quotas, have a sunset clause on them. If they don't work, fine, we'll revisit it and we'll review it and try something new. But this, the meritocracy, that sort of system is not working. Yeah. Now, the one interesting thing I found about the Sunday Life article was, in fact, the note which it ends on with the ABC's Annabelle Crabb saying, when you write an article about how high-profile media men organise their lives... That is the point at which this thing is over. Miriam, why aren't those articles being written about the media? And if you pitched one to an editor, what what would you expect to hear? I guess I'd expect to hear no one wants to hear a, a man do what all men in the workplace do, which is, you know, manage their high-profile, high-pressure job. Um, you know, I think the idea of women having, um, you know, careers and stuff like that is, is sadly somewhat still of a novelty. Um, and that's just sort of the way that news values... Um, currently sit um mm. and then so that that's why you get those kind of articles i guess but i'm guessing it says as much about men's role at home than it does about women in the workplace i mean an article like that could that sort of be the sort of interrogation that's needed what do you think i mean i'd be scared that you you ask a man how he manages work-life balance and and the answer would just be oh you know my wife takes care of a lot of it <laughs> so, you know, um, which I don't know if that, that would be necessarily helpful to the cause. But, so um, is, is that not newsworthy? Can't we sort of name and shame a little bit? <laughs> well, maybe we should. Well, Annabelle Crabb in particular, she does love to tackle the issue of work-life balance, even if her male counterparts don't seem to want to do the same. She did recently reveal her own daily schedule to Mamma Mia's fittingly titled podcast, I Don't Know How She Does It. Whitney, is the public's interest in the ins and outs of these seemingly well-organised women's lives, is it a healthy interest? Well, is it a healthy interest? I don't know. I mean, I don't find it particularly interesting myself. I find it really curious that we're fascinated with people who are very well paid and we're, we're fascinated by the fact that they can manage busy lives when they can afford nannies and things like that. You know, it's, they're not people who are actually struggling to make ends meet and they have kids that they, 
you know, a lot of kids that they're trying to feed and, you know, trying to look after them and pay for childcare and all that sort of stuff. So I, I, I don't know. I find it a little bit absurd, to be honest. What do you think, Bridget? Uh, look, the most interesting article I've read on, on that issue is a piece in the New York Times about two years ago. Um, it was looking at minimum wage women, um, single women, single mothers, um, who work two jobs and um, their lives were fascinating. You know, the only time they they basically slept for more than half an hour was on public transport between jobs and, you know, um, leaving children in incredibly kind of, uh, I guess, um, you know, strange situations with neighbours or, you know, by themselves um, while they went, you know, went to different jobs in order to pay rent and to, and to put food on the table. And those stories to me are far more compelling than the stories of middle-class women um, because they demand real change and those are people who are in highly stressful situations and um, don't have a lot of control over um, over their hours and how much they're paid. So that's what I want to read more of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And the fact, I would agree. I would agree with that too. And the fact that someone's schedule could be so compelling—is there a glorification of busy that goes on? Um, absolutely. And I think um, you know, it's uh, you know, I've interviewed you know, for, comedians are a great example because when they're on a hot streak, um, they tend to have a radio gig. They're on TV. They have a column, and they'll be hot for five years, and then there'll be no work. So. I think there's an element with with some men and women in the media that they get really really busy for a short period of time because they they're um they're just the the eat girls and boys and then they've got to take advantage of that because the work does dry up um so yeah I can understand why some people go insanely busy for a number of years and then pull back you're listening to Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher. I'm speaking to Whitney Fitzsimmons, Bridget Delaney and Miriam Robin. A few weeks ago, we discussed the arrival of the Labor Party's very own news experiment, the Labor Herald. Well, the Labor Herald launched last week and Miriam, you've brought us the news that the Labor Herald won't be allowed to join the parliamentary press gallery because they've been deemed to be an openly biased news outlet. Tell me, were the Labor Herald, were they pushing their luck with this application? I think the press gallery is very, um, you know, touchy about access and about politicians refusing to front the media and things like that. And along comes the Labor Herald, which is a Labor-started publication. And, and there's a lot of, you know, fear about, you know, will politicians just give interviews to the Labor Herald now and, you know, face questioning there? And, and you know, obviously they'll still do some things, but if it leads to bypassing the traditional media to, to make announcements and the like, that won't be good for traditional players. And, and along into that, you know, intense anxiety comes the Labor Herald saying they want to be part of the press gallery. So, I mean, I think, um, I think the press gallery had good reasons to reject their, pub, their application, but, uh, but I do think the Labor Herald was never very likely to, to get in or to have very many friends in the press gallery. Yeah, Whitney, the press gallery has responded that their committee believes the Labor Herald equates to working for the ALP. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I don't know if that's fair. I mean, look, I, I think what is, I think Wendy Harmer's writing for the Labor Herald. Is that correct? Is that, or am I am I wrong in thinking that? I'm not I, sure. I, I I thought I read somewhere that she was. I mean, I think Wendy's, you know, highly, you know, I respect her a lot. I think she's great to work with, and um, I think you have to kind of you know, give people the the credit for being ethical and, um, you know, being able to kind of be um, balanced 
Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really think that that, I mean, that's, that's kind of tantamount to saying that when you work at the ABC, you know, you're, you're left wing, which is just rubbish. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know if I agree with that. Well, on that, Bridget, Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill wonders how newspapers funded by private enterprise can authentically claim ideological purity. Do you reckon she has a point? Uh, look, it depends on the the organisational structure. So, um, look, something can be funded by a, a company, and then the company can um, say in their charter or the, their um, their vision for the the media outlet that um, they won't influence the the politics of that. So, look, the money's got to come from somewhere. Now, Bridget. The, uh, the Nielsen figures on where Australians are going for their online news came out pretty recently, and it seems like the online invaders, the Daily Mail, the Guardian, and now the Huffington Post, are doing very well indeed. The Huffington Post, of course, is launching in Australia pretty soon. What did you make of those numbers? Look, I think there's obviously been some um, people who were um, loyal to those brands before they started Australian operations. Um, in Mumbrella today, Bruce Guthrie had a, a, a really interesting piece about um, how the New Daily, um, where I used to work, and the conversation are the only two purely Australian um, online-only players in the top 40 and that they deserve to be supported for that reason. And um, I think Bruce raises some interesting points about um, you know news organisations that are created um, not as a you know, as an offshoot or as part of a, a larger brand, but just in Australia. So, um, you know, it, it was an interesting article. Obviously, the new players of, of which, you know, I work for one, um, you know, have the ethos of the the older brand, but they're, they're producing new content that is very, uh, you know, very much based in that country. Miriam, what do you think the Huffington Post need to do to uh, create some stuff that resonates, I suppose, with Australian audiences? Um, well, look, I think they've, they've hired some uh, quite high-powered journalists. Um, I think in terms of doing stuff that resonates, they're going to be, um, I guess, in the same space as a whole lot of um, other free sort of political and, you know, general news websites, um, which which means, I guess, um, you know, um, I guess the Huffington Post has a sort of almost a daily mail kind of ethos, but from a very different sort of starting point. They're, they're quite... They're quite sort of tabloid, um, you know, long headlines, uh, lots of information, lots of pictures and photo galleries and things like that. Um, I, I assume they'll just roll out their sort of um, global kind of editorial um, positioning over here. And uh, as to whether um, it succeeds, I mean, they've, they've left it pretty late. Quite a few other players are very well established by now. Um, and, and the thing is that the Huffington Post has such global ambitions. So they've launched in a whole lot, bunch of other countries before looking finally at Australia, um, whether they've, they've sort of um, left it too late or, or yeah. they can get a foothold, I guess, remains to be seen. That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Whitney Fitzsimmons, Miriam Robin and Bridget Delaney. Don't forget you can now subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast via iTunes and your favourite podcasting app. You can also find us on Twitter, SoundCloud and Facebook and, of course, at 2SER.com. My name's Jack Fisher and you can catch us at the same time next week when we'll be speaking to The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, Martin Chulov. He'll be dropping in from Beirut and we'll see what he has to say about the media coverage from Syria. Where's it all gone? Until next week, thanks for listening. Thank you.